0: Father in heaven, we do give you the glory and we give you the praise for all that you are doing and all that you have done. Father, I thank you for every family that not just we've watched on this video, but we know um, uh, are a part of this community of faith, Father, these these folks that have gathered together and have uh, joined in, in fellowship and heart and mind, and most importantly, Father, who have built this, this community upon the gospel. And we ask that you would continue to strengthen us, that you would continue to enrich us with your presence, Father, that you would allow us to flourish in our pursuit of you and of your kingdom and of your glory. Father, in this Advent season, if we give, as we give further consideration to the promise of what it means to have you with us, God, open our hearts and our minds to better understand exactly what that looks like and how we are to respond. I pray that specifically for this moment now, as we approach your word, Father, as we approach your throne uh, with freedom and with grace, we pray that you would illuminate us, Father, that you would stir our hearts um, and allow us to to grow not just in understanding but to grow in courage as we seek to glorify you in all the ways that you so richly deserve and so be with us now and strengthen us in this time in jesus name amen and amen uh, like i said it, it's a great group of people that are part of this church family i know those folks that are new we're still trying to to meet so many others and i pray that those of you that have been here for a while have a chance to meet some of those that are new and you find the time to just intentionally interact and, and build on this community. Uh, it is difficult to to do that nowadays. It's difficult to hang out with people. It's, it's difficult to interact. The pandemic has disrupted so many different parts of life. That's definitely one of them, right? Socializing, hanging out with people has a whole new difficulty and twist to it now as a result of the pandemic, which is unfortunate because it was kind of difficult already. You know what I mean? Like there's a certain complexity to relationship and fellowship and hanging out that you I think you really experience as an adult which is unfortunate because when you're younger it's not quite as complex there's a simplicity to social relationships and interactions when you're younger in fact as a, as a father and watching my children at this particular stage of their childhood it's, it's fairly enjoyable you know my children are 10 8 and 3 to get a chance to just kind of relive childhood memories. And, and I don't mean like live vicariously through my children, but just be re- reminded of what it was like to be a child. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed is watching them develop socially in these different social interactions that they go through. And it typically kind of follows this, this beautiful arc that leads to this simplicity, right? Typically, you've got a, a friend that shows up at, at our house or we go over to a friend's house, typically unannounced, right? It's not planned, it's kind of impromptu, and, and after a, a very simple exchange of small talk, maybe like 30 seconds of, how's it going? What have you been doing? Uh, it inevitably ends up with this question where one of the children looks at their friend and says, so, uh, what do you want to do? And, and almost every single time the, the other person, the other friend looks back and goes, uh, I don't know, what do you want to do? And, and this is the perfect moment, right? It's there that creativity begins to bloom and the simplicity of, of the relationship and spending time together really begins to flourish. And I look back on it now as a parent with a level of envy, right? I, I wish we could kind of return to that simplicity. I don't know where we lose it in the, the continuum of, of adulthood, but we do. We, we overcomplicate social interactions right now. It feels like when you get to be an adult and you want to hang out with somebody, it always has to be scheduled, you know I mean I know, at least I know in my life and it feels that way in this culture it's like when I mean, you got to get out the calendar you got to find the date you got to find the location you got to move this thing around and move this thing around and then and then there's like this this whole series of decisions that have to be made especially if it's with a large group of people typically you're trying to be motivated by a, a specific event. Super Bowl party, Christmas party, game night, something. And then, and then it's this question of, okay, where are we going to go? Are we going to go out to eat? Or Is the restaurant going to be big enough? Are we going to have a big enough table? If it's a big enough table, if I'm going to be able to hear the people over there, is it going to be too loud? Are we're really going to be able to hang out and have a conversation, let's just have them in our house. Oh, but if we have it at our house, maybe we got to clean, they got to come up with a menu, i got to cook. Maybe I can ask everybody to bring a side dish, but then once they bring, then we got to clean everything. I mean, we like exhaust ourselves just to hang out, right? Which is why very few people really do it, it seems like, anymore, right? Because it's exhausting because we overcomplicate so much. Don't you think it'd be great if adults could just return to the simplicity of childhood and have those impromptu interactions? Like the next time a friend shows up at your house and randomly asks you what you do, you all just start riding bikes. You know what I mean? And not like as exercise around the city, just like, in the neighborhood, up and down each other's driveways, you know. And then after that, you decide, hey, let's play tag. And you just start playing tag with your adult friends. And after that, you build a fort and spy on each other. So, like, I love the simplicity of the moment, and I'm, I'm envious of it in so many different ways. Here's my, my point in bringing it up for us this morning, is that the reality is, regardless of your stage of life, right, if you're in the simplicity of childhood or you're in the complexity of adulthood, relationship has to have a reason. More often than not, you're searching, what, what are we going to do? What's the point of us being together? What, what is this time spent together going to look like, right? Relationships have a purpose. They have a reason. They have a cause. They have an objective. And so, so I, I mentioned that to you this morning because when we go through this series of exploring this theme of God being with us, this relationship that we have with God, the question we need to ask ourselves is, why? Why? Why is he with us? What is the point? What is this relationship all about? What is the reason for this communion that is now taking place with God? That's the question that we're going to strive to answer with greater intentionality this morning. So grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1 to do it. I always try to make the comment that if you don't have a Bible, please let us know. We'd be happy to gift one to you. Uh, The last several weeks, if we've As we've walked through this theme of God being with us, we've really kind of camped out in the Old Testament, looking at Old Testament stories of Jacob and Joshua in particular. And and our point in looking into those stories has led us to kind of elaborate on a greater discussion of what God being with us entails, right? So we've described it a little bit more, right? We talked about how it means that he is going to watch over us and protect us, that he's leading us, and that he's gonna always be with us. Or like last week, In discussing the story of Joshua, we talked about those moments when God calls you to do something. And you feel the enormity of the moment or the enormity of the task and and what it is that God's calls you to do, but that he's with you in those overwhelming seasons, but that really what he's after is not so much the task but your heart, right? So we we've described kind of the, the nature of God's presence, but we haven't really stopped and asked, but why? Why is he with us? And that's what we'll consider this morning, with a much more traditional a story for Christmas season. In Matthew chapter one, we're gonna return to a familiar story that we find during this time of year with the story of Joseph and Mary. So follow along with me in Matthew chapter one, starting in verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. All right, it's a familiar story, one that is worth revisiting, not just during the Advent season, but throughout the year, because it carries so much significance. And so the way that we're going to approach it this morning is to first really make sure that we don't miss the significance of what Matthew has just introduced. And then after we've kind of gone through the details of the story, we'll return to that question, why is God with us? Which is really embedded right there in the middle of the story, and we'll give it some intentional reflection this morning. And so when you you consider the significance of the story, you're going to hear that word a lot because there are so many different statements that Matthew makes in the story that really does convey a high level of significance that we cannot lose sight of. And And it begins there in verse 18. This is the, the, the story, right? This is the, the story of how Jesus the Messiah, the birth of Jesus the Messiah, came to be. And what should absolutely grab your attention in that opening statement is that word, Messiah. Hey, okay? every gospel writer tends to uh, immediately come out and declare exactly who Jesus is. And it would have had a jolting response across the readers of the day, right? Mark says, this is the story of Jesus, the son of God. You think about John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Time and time again, the gospel writers come straight to it and say, this is exactly who Jesus is in the story that I'm about to tell. In in Matthew chapter one, verse one, before the genealogy, he says it, right? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And then after that, he returns. He goes, let me tell you the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. Right now, we hear that word and it becomes somewhat familiar. And as a result, we can kind of lose sight of its significance and its importance. And so let's refresh our memories here that Messiah is the Greek word Christos, right? It could also be translated as Christ. And it very simply means anointed one. So the, the practice of anointing would be to pour oil over an individual, right? To typically... Uh, do this in a ceremonial act, and in that ceremonial act, it is often understood to be a process that was conferring upon the individual who was being anointed to confer strength and majesty upon them, and so as a result of that, that strong message and that great significance, this became something that was very commonly practiced uh, when anointing a new king, right? So it became like a royal practice in particular to anoint upon this king uh, strength In majesty. Well, as time developed and the prophets began to help shape the narrative of Israel, there became a consistent theme and discussion of the anointed one, right? A a Christ figure, a Messiah figure who would be conferred upon by strength and majesty. And the language in the prophets that spoke of this Messiah would point to this, this king, so to speak, who would come in and reign with humility and peace and righteousness. And so it became a very strong narrative to the people of Israel to anticipate and look for this Messiah. And so what Matthew has just said is I know about all that. I know how long you've waited for this. I know the significance of this term. I know the importance of finding this anointed one. He's here. He has a name. Right? So it's an incredible opening statement. And it, and it introduces us to two unlikely characters of Joseph and Mary. And we really get to see the arrival, the birth of this Messiah through their story. And so Matthew gives us some details of, of Joseph and Mary saying that they were pledged to be married, right? And, and that's, that's different than maybe what we're used to. Uh, to be pledged to be married, betrothed to be married in this point in time was a legal act, right? So what that means is, is that you couldn't break off that engagement. In our world, you can get engaged, and it's absolutely serious, but you can break it off without any legal ramifications, right? I mean, you give the ring back, maybe you don't give the ring back just to spite him, whatever. But, but there's no legal implications related to it. You know what I'm saying? And so, so here, when you were pledged to be married, even though the marriage wasn't finalized, it was legal. And so here you have this significant commitment that's already in place between Mary and Joseph, and they discover she's pregnant. And that's where the story becomes scandalous. And I mean that in every sense of the word. Like, like this was not a good thing. Imagine being Joseph. And how you would feel. How you'd begin to process that. How you would likely have feelings of betrayal, and anger, and frustration, and heartache, and pain. Think about the concern of perception, and how people would begin to view Mary, how they would whisper about her and the rumors that would circulate, right? Don't lose sight of the fact that the arrival of this Messiah and the story of Joseph and Mary is filled with all this potential scandal and heartache and and pain, right? Even even in Matthew's genealogy, Matthew uh, alludes to it. In fact, if you go back and study his genealogy in great detail, we've talked about this before, you'll, you'll notice that he has intentional references to other women in the Davidic line, to Rahab, to Tamar, to Uriah's wife. You go back and read those stories, see the controversies and the rumors and the things that were said about those women. Matthew's saying, listen, I know what's being said about Mary. Don't think that that's unusual to your past and to your lineage. God still works in those moments. So that's the circumstances surrounding this relationship, and so it gives us insight into Joseph's dilemma, right? And it's, it's a really profound portrayal and insight to Joseph's character when you really give consideration to it, because what it tells us is that Joseph then, right, as a righteous man who wanted to uphold the law, uh, was trying to figure out what to do, right? What do, what do I do with this situation he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace and and yet he needed to uphold the law and so with that conflict and that dilemma you see a little bit of joseph's heart on the one hand he loved her and i don't want us to miss that he loved her all right Th- think about this he hears this news as heartbroken as he is as, as confused maybe he thinks she's lying to him. i mean who knows what his initial reaction is he doesn't respond with vengeance he doesn't respond with hate or anger. He knows that the law would require that a woman in that situation should be killed and stoned. Now, in first century Judaism, that wasn't a common practice anymore, but the public disgrace that would follow would absolutely ruin her life. And if had, had he been vengeful, had he been vindictive, had he been hateful, that's exactly what he could have done, but he didn't because he loved her. So he wanted to show kindness to her somehow, but he was conflicted with that feeling because at the same time, it says he was a righteous man. Now, that's the actual word that's used in the Greek. It just is righteous, that that Joseph was a righteous man. It's interesting how the NIV translates it because there are some considerations that maybe the, the gospel writer was trying to infer that he was righteous because he believed in the conception of the Holy Spirit, that he already believed it. But when you look at the context and what follows, what is a more likely translation and why the NIV goes ahead and says it this way is that the righteousness that was being referred to here for Joseph was a desire to follow Moses' law, right, to uphold the Mosaic law. And so what he's trying to do is, I, I've, I can't participate in this, I can't participate in this, this scandal and the things that she's done, otherwise I'm, I'm guilty by association with it, but I love her. And so that inner conflict shows a huge part of who Joseph is, and so he decides, he reasons in his own mind, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to expose her to public disgrace. I'm going to divorce her quietly. And now is his solution. His solution to somehow demonstrate kindness to Mary, but keep his integrity intact. So now Joseph has a plan for a de- very difficult situation. But isn't, isn't it funny that a lot of times when we come up with our own plan in life and we we do everything we can to demonstrate kindness and integrity. God still has another plan, All right? And, and that's kind of where the story turns here is that it it's, becomes almost representative of that proverb that those verses in scripture that say, you know, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord directs his steps. Right? Joseph says, okay, this is not easy. This is difficult, I don't know, but I'm, I'm gonna go this way. And God says, actually, I'm gonna send you this way. And so it's in that moment where an angel of the Lord appears and begins to speak to Joseph in this difficult situation. And the first thing that the angel says is don't be afraid, right? That's a constant refrain of Advent. It's often accompanied with this theme of God being with us, don't be afraid. Why is he telling you that? The angel of the Lord says, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. That's That's a pretty significant statement. Given the controversy, given the scandal, given the whispers and the rumors that would have been offered and said about Mary, what God is now saying is, I'm not going to ask you to actually separate from that. I'm actually going to ask you to walk alongside her. Isn't that that remarkable? Mary, Mary was on the verge, if not already, as being seen as an outcast by the culture around her because of this miracle, because of this moment. And and what God tells Joseph is not to leave her on her own, but to walk alongside her. Isn't that how God often calls us? To walk alongside the outcast. To step into the controversy. To step into the things that culture would reject. And not to respond in a spirit of judgment, but in a spirit of love. And so that's how God redirects Joseph's steps. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. and the angel gives greater explanation as to why Joseph doesn't need to fear because the child that's within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Another mind-blowing statement of significance. Like we, we cannot run past that. Okay, think about the implications of that verse alone. Right, several things to point out. The first is that the angel of the Lord has just confirmed and, and affirmed to Joseph This isn't scandalous. This isn't a betrayal. She hasn't lied to you. She hasn't been unfaithful to you. This is an act of God. So that's the first thing. The angel solidifies that in Joseph's mind. But think about the implications of Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit. That the Messiah was conceived by the Spirit of God. We have to understand that. Right? To, to understand the essence of the gospel is to understand the essence of Jesus. Okay? And, and so what you begin to discover as you really study this gospel and you study this Messiah is you discover that, that this Messiah needs to be fully man and fully divine. You cannot have one without the other for this Messiah. Think about the reasons why. Okay? The Messiah has to be fully man, has to be fully human because there is a penalty, there is a punishment that mankind owes in order to satisfy the righteousness and the justice of God. Right? You, you, you cannot, set, that punishment has to be absorbed. It, it has to be experienced for God's righteousness to be intact, but therein lies the problem. What man, what woman, what human, what human? is able to absorb and present themselves as a sacrifice for that punishment to appease this justice. None. There is none perfect. There is none spotless. There is none blameless, which is why the Messiah has to be divine. Only there does the sacrifice become purely acceptable in God's mind, in God's eyes, therefore satisfying not just his justice but his mercy, and grace. And so this becomes fully developed through the writings of the New Testament. You, you can't hide from it, right? It's what leads the author of Hebrews in chapter one to say, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that God has spoken to us in many different ways throughout the years, right? He's, he's spoken to us through, through prophets and through his word, but now he's chosen to spoke, speak to us through his son. And how does the author of Hebrews describe his son? The radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being the exact representation of his being. Colossians 2.9, perhaps my favorite uh, verse that, that captures this idea so powerfully and so succinctly that it says, Paul writes, for in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Right, you cannot get away from the idea in Scripture that the Messiah is fully man and fully divine. The moment you begin to gravitate to one or the other, you've lost the gospel, right? The moment you begin to think, okay, well, I don't think Jesus really existed as a person. No way anybody can do all those miracles. It was just some kind of mythical figure, just kind of some sort of spirit or whatever. It meant you have lost the gospel. The more common mistake and the more common tendency in our world today is to eliminate Jesus's divinity, right? He was a good person. He was a good teacher. He was a great advocate for justice. He was a great moral example, but I don't know that he really had all that different authority power i don't know that he really did all those miracles i don't really believe he was divine the moment you begin to think that you have lost the gospel and the fullness of what the gospel promises to redeem the physical world by the gift of the divine jesus this messiah was conceived by the holy spirit that is an incredibly significant statement and so the angel continues to elaborate upon it by saying and so you She'll give birth to a son, you'll name him Jesus, and he will have his people, he will save his people from their sins. That's the verse we're going to come back to here in a moment, right? That's what helps us answer the why. But first, let's continue the other significant parts of this story. From there, Matthew reiterates another level of significance to the story of Mary and Joseph by drawing us back to the words of Isaiah, right? All this was done to fulfill, what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. Right? And he begins to quote Isaiah 7:14 that a virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. There's that promise. There's the word. That's what drives us through this theme, this whole Advent series. Right? And so, so when you think about words of prophecy and any sort of reference to prophecy, one of the things you have to keep in mind is how is this word of prophecy understood in both the short term and long term? Right, because more often than not, that prophetic word had to, to mean something to the audience of the day, right? So, so just to quickly reference that, when you study Isaiah 7, a lot of scholars would highlight that if you were going to look for a, a short-term fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, it, it's to spare us going through all the details and the nuances of, of that story, it's, it's, it's summarized by saying that Isaiah is probably speaking to King Ahaz and is talking about the promise of another king in the Davidic line probably Hezekiah, and, and in the infancy of that king, the other two kings that are causing grief for Ahaz, kings of Assyria and Israel, are gonna to come to ruin, right? So all related to that kind of political climate of Ahaz's reign, okay? That's probably the short-term fulfillment of it. But here's what's unique about Isaiah 7.14, is that it, it gains in its meaning, right? It, 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 it adds to its significance through the generations. Why? Right? It, it begins to carry this, this question of long-term fulfillment for a couple of reasons. The first is the name Emmanuel. That's a very powerful reference. Right? There's not a lot of other references to this title, this, this name Emmanuel, God with us. And, and that's one thing to probably keep in mind is that it, it really is a title, right? So it's not like Matthew is saying, you know, Joseph and Mary were kind of debating between two names, Jesus, Emmanuel, and they ended up going with Jesus. Like, really, Emmanuel is the title, right? It, this, this Messiah is the fullness of this promise that God is, is with us. And so that name, in and of itself, embedded in Isaiah 714, is what, what adds to its significance and its meaning through the generations. But in addition to that, the second reason it gains in significance and meaning is because of where it falls in the book of Isaiah. So if you, if you study Isaiah, there's this section, right, seven through nine in particular, that is really powerful, it has all these verses that speak with great eloquence of this kind of golden era of God's reign, right? Where there's gonna be this kingdom that is that is initiated and, and is brought into fruition. And in that kingdom, there's gonna be this, this Messiah, this kingly figure that's gonna rule with, with grace and peace. It's gonna be a moment where the wicked are judged and the righteous are blessed. And, and so if you continue reading. And you get to Isaiah nine, which is part of the section, that's where you find other familiar verses that we often refer to in Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will sit on David's throne and establish his kingdom kingdom, upholding it with righteousness and justice from that time on forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty. Will accomplish this. It is a powerful section. And so a lot of people look at all of it and say, okay, we're looking for this anointed one. It becomes a messianic prophecy who's going to do all these different things. And so Matthew, as he's writing this gospel, understands it all. And He says, listen, it is now. All of that is being fulfilled right now. And the significance of this story is mind-blowing when you really stop to consider it. And so have you, like as the significance of Christmas, the significance of Advent, have you really stopped to give it the consideration that it deserves? Because it's easy to go through Christmas and just fall into the routine, right? The traditions and the expectations, the responsibilities, the Christmas list, the activities, the events, all the different things that we want and and intend to be a part of that just have it all become a season that almost feels like a blur without us really stopping and considering the significance of the moment. You read Matthew 1, 18 through 25, time and time again, Matthew's saying it's the Messiah arriving in the midst of scandal. It's the appearance of an angel of the Lord announcing a conception of the Holy Spirit to fulfill prophecies of long ago. Let us not miss the significance of Jesus' birth. And what adds to it and what really drives the significance of this story home for me and what I want us to consider further this morning is it also is a story that helps us answer the question, why? So God is with us. This Emmanuel has come. This Messiah is here. Why? What's the point of this relationship? What what is this fellowship going to really achieve? What's it going to accomplish? And it's right there in Matthew one twenty one right as the angel continues with the explanation saying she will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins incredible statement now let's start with a name there's a lot to be said for a name we we struggle with understanding the importance and the significance of it in our culture because names don't carry the same level of significance right we we get to name children and typically, what goes into that decision-making process is we think, all right, you know, I want to honor a relative. You know, I'm going to choose a name. It's a family name, you know, four generations. Or I want to name them after my grandfather, or grandmother, whatever. And, and we kind of pick a name that way. Or we just pick a name based in creativity. You know, oh, why would you choose that name? I just really liked it. I thought it sounded pretty. I like what it means. You know? And that's kind of what we typically do with the naming process. In the Judaic culture, in the Hebraic culture, naming was an incredibly important part of, of life, right? On the front end, it was important because to name something meant that you had a certain authority over the thing that was being named. And so, like you journey back to, to Genesis, and Adam gets to name the animals. Part of that was to demonstrate his dominion, his rule, his authority over so many created things. So, isn't it interesting here that Mary and Joseph don't get to choose the name? God does. He's the one that, that firmly establishes his role and his authority in this child's life. God chooses this name, no one else. And in, in a name in Hebraic culture was understood to be indicative of a person's destiny and character, right? That's, that's what they would look for, is, is a name that would point to that person's character and their purpose, their plan, their destiny. And so so what do we find when you really begin to study the name Jesus? So it's, it's the Greek form of Joshua, Yeshua. And, and the correlation is not really tied to Joshua, who we talked about last week, who, who led the Israelites into the promised land, though there are some pretty cool parallels there if you want to draw those conclusions. But what really is being said here is that the word Joshua, the name Joshua in its short form, short form simply means Yahweh saves. Yahweh's salvation. It's a great, powerful name. And so if, if you were to hear that name being chosen for this Messiah, it would make sense. It would resonate with the people because the idea of God saving was not a new concept. That's what they were longing for. That's what they were, they were anticipating. But, but their lens through which they were anticipating God's salvation was really more a political and national saving, right? And so in this context, it, they wanted to be set free from the oppression of Rome, from from Roman rule, from Roman's occupation of their land. And and don't dismiss that. Of course they wanted that. Think about how important the land was. That's what we've been talking about for several weeks, right? That was the heart of the blessing through the patriarchal narrative. You go back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and how was God going to bless his people? He's going to lead them to the land. And now it was disrupted. It was occupied. The, They weren't free within it. And so the Savior, the Messiah, the anointed one, was going to come in and reestablish that reign for them. So hearing the name Jesus, Yahweh saves, would have been received with great anticipation and expectation. What would have been different and what would have caught them off guard was how the angel clarifies the significance of that name. He's, He's going to be named Jesus because he's going to set his people free from their sins, not from Rome, from sin. That's a pretty incredible statement, and, and it's one that I think we would all admit is, is fairly familiar, right? I mean, whether you grew up in church or not, there's probably a high probability that if somebody asks you, you know, why, why did Jesus come? You know, what was the point? You're going to get some variation of an answer that says, well, to save us from our sin, That's kind of the Sunday school answer we learn in an early age. So maybe it's not revelatory for you this morning, but let me ask you this. When's the last time you really stopped and thought about that? And and it wasn't just kind of a rote answer in your mind. Like the significance of the fact that that God being with us, Jesus the Messiah being born means we have been saved from sin. You thought about that? So, so, sin, in its simplest definition, means to fall short of what was intended, right? To miss the mark. And if, if you think about that definition, it should really take us back to the garden, into Genesis, right? Because it's there that we see what was intended, right? And it's there that we see how we fell short, of the story of the fall. It's there that sin really first began to burst. Onto the scene. And so when you go back to the garden, what you see is perfect harmony. You see perfect relationship, perfect fellowship between mankind and each other, mankind and creation, mankind with with God Himself, right? They were in perfect harmony with one another. And in the parameters of that relationship, God offers this declaration that says, You can eat from any tree in this garden except one tree of knowledge of good and evil. You eat of that fruit you will die. Now it's it's an interesting story and and, and sometimes we hear that statement and we think well God kind of set an arbitrary rule that if mankind breaks it he's going to kill him. Right? So you just obey what God says, but it's so much more than that. Right? Because we talked about this before that the tree of knowledge of good and evil is emblematic of this inner impulse that we all carry right, this this volition towards our own will, right? And so so what that was saying was that the temptation is I want to go and discover good and evil for myself. I want to determine what's right and wrong. I don't want to have to follow what what God says, what what his parameters are. I want to experience good and evil for myself, not with God, but without God. That's why the temptation works. I know you won't die. You'll be like God. You don't need him. You don't need to be with him. You can be without him. And so the ramifications of that is that God says, let me be very clear as to what happens in that scenario. If you are not with me, you are with death. There is no life apart from me. And so falling short of what God intended, what we see very clearly laid out for us in the story of Genesis is that the wages of sin is death. And that's exactly what happens they fall short of what god intended and we see not just the emergence of death but death by way of cursing right a curse that is falling upon the animal right the, the curse that falls upon man and woman and even the land all of creation falls subjected to this curse and so as a result from a biblical point of view sin is the root of all calamity right all of it and so so when I think about sin and the significance of Jesus coming to save us from sin, I would encourage you to consider it from at least three categories this morning, right? That's how I want us to kind of wrap up our time to really reflect on this. And, and when I say categories, I don't mean like degrees of sin, right? Like, well, here are the really bad ones, and here's the okay ones, and these you can probably get away with, right? Like, I'm not talking about three degrees of sin. I'm talking about three categories of sin, the three different ways that sin typically manifests itself in our existence and in life. Right, the first one I want you to consider is, is nature, creation itself. Okay, think about how all of nature and all of creation has been subjected to the curse of sin. Right, the book of Romans spells this out very clearly for us. I want to, I want to read for you this excerpt from Romans chapter 8 verse 20. It says, For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. So, so listen to those words. Creation, nature, is subjected to frustration in the bondage of decay. That's what we're surrounded by. It's, it's, it's picturesque as it can be, as awe-inspiring as it can be in these, these great glimpses of God's grandeur and glory, we cannot escape the fact that we are surrounded by a world that is held in bondage of decay and is frustrated, right? It, like, like everything around us is dying. Now we can put a positive spin on it and turn it into a Disney song and call it the circle of life, but it's also the circle of death to be honest, right? And so, so creation groans, Romans says, right? It's in frustration because of this bondage of decay. In this. So think about how that manifests itself in our world. Let's, let's think about natural disasters and diseases. Right, so, so natural disasters are defined as an event that results in economic loss of $50 million or at least 20 fatalities or 50 injuries or 2,000 homes and structures damaged. Think about that, $50 million dollars Right, Uh, 50, 20 fatalities, 50 injuries, 2,000 homes destroyed. In 2019, there were 409 natural disasters. That happened 409 times. And on average, natural disasters cause 60,000 deaths per year. Because nature and creation is frustrated and groans in this bondage of decay. The reason that that happens is because of sin, right? And I, I'm not saying like, oh, you, you sinned. You said a bad word, so God's going to send a tornado to your house, right? Like that's, that's what I'm talking about. It's just cursed. It's broken. Think about, think about diseases, right? Like we get sick. As great as the human body is, as, as, as much as we can marvel at its design and its intricacy, we get sick just by living here and interacting with one another, it's something we're all very familiar with after this year. You know there are estimates of around seven to 10,000 diseases that are known around the world. If you look at the leading causes of death, the top 10 leading causes of death, eight of them are disease. Eight of the 10, right? So, so we have the randomness of tragedy that we experience through, through loss of health, the tragedy of of nature, whatever it is, and all of it is because of sin, this bondage of decay that leads us to death. That's one category. second category would be when we are victims of sin, right? So the sinfulness of someone else becomes something that we experience personally, and we bear the wounds, and we bear the marks of someone else's greed, Someone else's corruption, someone else's violence, addiction, whatever it is, right? And this this takes its form on so many different levels around the world. These are statistics that all come from 2018. Some estimates from what we know, and I would emphasize what we know because I'm sure a lot of these go unknown. There were 274,855 homicides in 2018. 3.56 million burglaries worldwide. 2.53 2.53 million assaults, 33,393 kidnappings. Right, so there's God looking down on his creation, seeing how we're treating one another, despite saying, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, turn the other cheek, take care of these little ones. And by the thousands and millions, year after year after year, he sees how this sin influences our relationship with one another. And those are just like the the obvious ones. Think about all the other moments where somebody says something to you that they shouldn't have said. Words that they can't take back that were so piercing and so hurtful. Those moments that you've been a victim of gossip, right? Or somebody else's poor choices, Somebody else drinks and drives and gets in a car and you lose a loved one. Somebody else, because of their addiction and their mental instability engages in an act that victimizes your home, your family, your children. How frustrating that is and how hurtful that can be. How many of us are wounded in here today by the sin of someone else? And then the third category, right? It's not just what we see in nature and creation or what we've experienced as victims from others, but what we know is within our own hearts. Maybe with different degrees, maybe with different levels of, of awareness by others, but we're the ones that steal. We're the ones that, that kill. Well, no, no, I've never committed murder, Jeremiah. Let's, let's not forget, though, that Jesus says, if you're even angry at your brother, it's the same as committing murder. All the adultery, that we've fallen victim to. No, 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 I've never never been unfaithful. If you even look at another woman lustfully, it's committing adultery in your heart. All all those moments that we've tried to keep secret, those things that we do in in places that people we think don't see, right, those moments that we were the ones that said something that was so hurtful. We were the ones that, that did that act of deceit and pain that was inflicted on someone else. And And we are the ones that begin to retreat into our own self-isolation and loneliness, distancing ourselves from the call to love others, living in our own self-pity, our own self-depression, whatever it is, all these moments that we feel the weight of guilt and shame in our own life because of sin. So, So where are you this morning? Maybe you've gone through a season where you have been wounded by the randomness of this broken world, the weight of disease, the diagnosis of cancer, of Alzheimer's, and you've seen it eat away at you or a loved one, and you're wondering, where is God in all of this? Maybe you're the victim. Maybe you're grieving because of how somebody has treated you, a spouse that left you, a family member that that hurt you or a loved one. A friend that said something that they can't take back. All those moments that you've been victimized in some way. Or maybe you're here today because you are overcome with the weight of guilt and shame because of the choices you've made. The mistakes that that you've experienced in your own life. The way you've hurt people just instantaneously without even recognizing it was within you. All those moments. Where are you today? How do you feel the weight of sin in your life? Here's the good news, church. Jesus came to save us from all of it. Every single bit of it. And so the hope that we have is that while we're wounded in this life, we can still find joy, we can still find grace, we can still find forgiveness to anticipate the fullness of this kingdom that this Messiah is destined to bring. The good news of Christmas is that Jesus saves all of us from the sin. If we choose to believe in him, repent of that sin, and follow him, we are known as his people. And the salvation of God himself is extended to every single heart, soul, and mind. And that's what makes the season of Christmas a season of joy that can never be taken away from us. Because God has sent this Messiah to save, to save you from your sins, to save the world from bondage and decay, to heal every broken heart, and to lead us into a promise where there is no more suffering, sorrow, or pain. That's the good news Of Christmas. And that's the news that we should all receive with unending joy. So when you hear that message this year, church, God is with you. Take heart, rejoice in this Emmanuel, because you know what that means. He has come to save. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your work of salvation. And so, Father, we ask with wounded and broken hearts that are yet joyful and expectant, we say, Come, King of Nations, and bring an end to all this suffering. Bring an end to every pain and every sorrow. Let every single one of them cease. And Father, we ask now that you would reign forever in our hearts, in our souls, and our minds. As a mighty God, as an everlasting Father, as a wonderful counselor, as our prince, of peace, our Emmanuel. We rejoice because we know that the sin that so easily entangles and stains as crimson. It's been washed white as snow. So we come to sing your praises that you have saved us from a life of living without you into a life of living with you. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in the precious, sacred, holy name of Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior. Amen.